This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, March the 1st, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the news panel bats around three topics. It's been a busy week in Ottawa. It warrants a federal politics roundup. The failure of Lynx Airlines raises questions about the viability of budget airlines in Canada. Why can't they get off the ground? And the CEO of Kellogg's says families struggling financially should have cereal for dinner. No, no, no. We're not going to spend 15 minutes dunking on that preposterous statement. It will be used instead for a fun conversation How do you feel about breakfast any time of the day? That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. The top story of the day is a bit of a downer. Reaction is pouring in after former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney passed away yesterday. Here's Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev. He was the son of an electrician who, despite those modest beginnings in a working-class community in Baie-Comeau, Quebec, rose to extraordinary heights in business. Before he even turned 40, he was the head of the Iron Ore Company, one of the greatest mining companies of all time. He then jumped into politics and won the biggest majority in Canadian history, later winning re-election. But it wasn't electoral success that defined his political career, it was what he did with it. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reflects on a time that Mulroney aided him a few years ago. And he leaned in and helped me and helped this country in the very precarious moments of renegotiating NAFTA uh, with the Trump White House. Um, Demonstrated a deep commitment to this country that I think is the very best of Canadians and the very best of politics. Former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien shared fond memories of working with Mulroney. We would tease each other. You will poke fun at me, I will poke fun at him. And, uh, you know, we will, uh, you know, as I say, it is, we have to take, not to take ourselves too seriously. We have to take the job very seriously. But life is life and we all do our best. Ontario Premier Doug Ford says Mulroney's legacy runs deep. You want to talk about leadership. You want to talk about trailblazers, uh, visionaries. That, that was Brian Mulroney. You think of the, the fair trade deal that he put together. You think about him helping end apartheid. And I, the list goes on and on and on. Mulroney was 84 years old. Brian Mulroney was not necessarily part of my political consciousness. He left the job before I was even 10 years old. But he and his family were fixtures in the Montreal area at community events, at community sports activities, just walking the streets of downtown. He was someone who did not mind being amongst the people and building his community. I think you heard that from people like Doug Ford and 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that it wasn't just politics that defined the man, it was a deep love of the country of Canada and a deep love of the city of Montreal, where he spent most of his time after a life in politics. And it's one of the things that makes leaders great when they are more than just the job that defines them. And he was truly a man engaged in his community. He will be missed. Rest in power, Mr. Mulroney. That's your look at the news. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Yesterday, you were asked about breaches of major organizations. The Toronto Public Library still putting the pieces back together after hackers uh, took them offline for a few months. How much does an organization being breached by hackers influence whether you'll use their services in the future? 56% of you said a lot, 22% of you said a little, and 22% of you said not at all. Over on X, Paul posts, it depends on the organization that's been breached. If it's a library, I'm not too worried. All hackers are going to find is materials I took out from the library. If my bank has been breached, that's very different with all my financial information possibly Today's daily poll requires a little bit of setup. The Global Day of Unplugging starts today at sundown. Sherry Preston has more. It was a day created by a Jewish community back in 2003, but 20 years later, the Global Day of Unplugging has no religious connotations. It's simply a 24-hour period in which you go screen-free. The idea? Turn off the noise and reconnect with friends, family, and your community in person and in the present. Before you start a digital detox, you might want to tell folks so they don't worry when you don't respond right away. When you do begin, maybe take a walk, get out in nature. When you feel like reaching for your phone, remember, quieting the noise will only last a day unless you choose to make it longer. Sherry Preston, ABC News. That's a very fair point. If you are about to put your devices away, you should definitely alert your inner circle. My sister would freak out if uh, I went off the grid without telling her she would not like that at all. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, the Global Day of Unplugging starts at sundown. How long could you go without using your devices? A few hours, a day, a few days, or longer? Laura Bain, unless I'm at a cottage deliberately off the grid, I'm a few hours tops. At this point, I probably have device addiction. Yeah, I'm going to say something similar, Dave. I think that very the the answer is very little time in my current circumstances, sort of with work and school and that expectation of um, constant availability and immediate response. I think it would be like difficult not to have my device, and would, it would just sort of put me at an unnecessary disadvantage from an accessibility standpoint mm-hmm, if I was sort of mm-hmm. trying to navigate my exact same current circumstance but without my device. But I feel like in the right circumstances. I could go indefinitely without my device. It actually sounds pretty nice right now, if I'm being honest. Like, um, you know, I'm imagining a scenario where no one has their devices, and so it's no longer the expectation. Oh my but gosh. that's sort of like an <laughs> apocalyptic scenario, but but less so, you know, maybe if I was at some sort of retreat uh, where my needs were being met otherwise and my friends and family knew that I was all right. But it's interesting kind of mentioning the um, just religious aspect of it because I... You know, I'm acquainted with um, 
a particular community that keeps the Sabbath because they run a camp for the blind that I used to go to when I was young. And consequently, I made a lot of friends and connections there and um, had the opportunity to stay with them a couple of times at their sort of uh, campground area that they have during the Sabbath. And what a wonderful experience of people uh, and families coming together and doing different things other than just watching TV and being on their devices. Mm -hmm. And really, um, whether there's a religious aspect to it or not, I do really like that idea of having a day of rest and maybe getting out in nature, having human interaction. So yeah, yeah. complicated answer. Not very long in my current circumstances. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I can dream. I can dream of different circumstances. I like I like some of the things you highlighted there. Growing up in Montreal, I actually had a chance to spend some time with people from that particular sect of Judaism that does take the Sabbath that seriously, where it's not even just no TV, it's no electricity, it's it's no nothing, it's no phones from sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday. And and similar to what you're describing there, it, it's a very spiritually enlightened lightning experience again that's a little bit more deliberate than necessarily uh than sort of a, a random unplugging but yeah there, there really is something spiritual about it but again there's also an understanding that folks are going to be off the grid for 24 hours so don't don't panic too too much mm-hmm. alex you and i have batted this around before you've mentioned that hey i can just grab a book i'll be all right but i i don't know man like so much of my entertainment comes out of my devices now right i i don't even i, I don't even know where my walkman is right now i don't even know where my radio is if i don't have my phone for my podcasts and music and there's just going to be a lot of silence and then the demons in my brain are going to start screaming well i i think part of it for me is the idea that you know i know there's enough other things i could be doing with my time like i could be spending a few days you know organizing my life cleaning up things going through all that sort of like I think, oh, go through the closet. Oh, maybe I can go and learn a new recipe or or do something like that. Oh, I can get outside. Oh, I can go where, work. Where, where are you going to find that recipe, though? If if not if not, rest, Pinterest, if not books. on Pinterest, if not on Pinterest, physical <laughs> recipe books. I I'm I'm a bit of a luddite in in that regard. I have the cookbooks and in in the the laundry room. So I there are those elements where it's like, okay, you know, I could the keep myself room. entertained. Yeah, that's where we keep our our cookbooks for whatever reason you know our, our kitchen is stocked full of everything else in in a kitchen so okay. our our cookbooks go over to washer and dryer don't ask me to explain the layout <laughs> no, of this I, house I, I i had a sneaking suspicion that how the smites make pasta is setting the water temperature in your washing machine really high and just <laughs> dumping some bags of pasta in <laughs> not quite not quite we haven't quite reached that uh, limit yet but uh so i i think that's always where my mind goes when i think about like oh disconnecting for a day or a couple days that okay for a few days i feel like i could keep myself busy enough because i think about the downtime as you say dave like i'm not thinking about the work side of things i think if you're unplugging like that's that's part of the equation you're you're not working uh, especially if you work remotely like i do a majority of the <laughs> yeah, time it would be it would be pretty difficult for anybody <laughs> on this team to unplug for even more than a few hours unless it was explicitly spelled out that it's vacation time alex laura thank you both for this at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also give your feedback, 
via emailing feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or picking up the phone, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. The Global Day of Unplugging, starting at sundown tonight. I will not be observing, except when I'm asleep. I'll have no problem unplugging while I'm asleep. No need for an alarm clock tomorrow. Coming up after the break, it's been a busy week in federal politics. The news panel rounds up all the activity in Ottawa. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday. It's news panel time. Let's bring in the panelists for the show, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hi, Dave. And hello, Michelle. Hello, friends. All right, let's jump right in. It's been a busy week in Ottawa. There are plenty of federal politics to round up, starting with the federal government introducing initial steps in a national pharmacare plan. The rollout will include diabetes medication and supplies. Access to birth, birth control is also included. Here's Health Minister Mark Holland. Waking up in a country where every single woman has access to the contraception she needs to control her future is an absolutely critical part of having a just society. This is about health equity. It's also about affordability. Here's what NDP health critic Don Davies had to say. Canadians will be able to walk into a pharmacy, present their prescription, and walk out with the medicine and devices they need without any copayment or deductible on a universal basis through our public system. Joita, Michelle and I already tossed this topic around on Monday as some of the news broke over the weekend, but what do you think of this initial plan? Well, I mean, it is very promising and very ambitious. Uh, I think there are economic and uh, political ramifications that we can certainly get into, but I think on the face of it, it's a very ambitious first step. Uh, one in out of four Canadians that live with diabetes at the moment are unable to comply with treatment plans because they can't afford the supplies. So there's clearly a need there. And we know diabetes can cause a number of health conditions if not adequately treated, including blindness. Uh, but also the step towards contraception is frankly long overdue. I think it uh, is a very important first step for, uh, it's a it's a very important step for women and sexual liberation and, and you know women being able to make choices about when and how they get pregnant. So. All in all, on the face of it, it's really great. Uh, I think a lot of the wrangling will really come down to the negotiations with the provinces. Um, there's a talk about creating a national formulary. So what will that actually end up looking like? And what sort of a relationship will um, Canada have as a purchaser with major, major pharmaceutical companies? And what are the what's the insurance industry saying about this? Because 
you know, health insurance plans is, is one of the ways in which many Canadians have up to this point paid for medication. So I'm sure they have something to say about it, but we can certainly get into it. Michelle, details were a smidge sparse when you and I spoke on Monday, but a lot of the reporting bore out yesterday yeah. what we thought we knew. Right? It's definitely a targeted approach. And one of the reasons why I believe it will have some success is targeted typically means attainable. Starting with a wide swath might have been yeah. too difficult. So my initial reaction could be a bit underwhelmed, but an appreciation of a targeted approach. I'm kind of with you. I had the same thought of yesterday of, well, well, I guess Dave and I don't have to walk anything back when the announcement <laughs> came out. I was actually... <laughs> I was actually a tiny bit surprised that that was kind of it. I remember day on Monday, we were talking about how we knew the ADP had confirmed that contraception and diabetes would be the core of it, but there, there might be room for some more. And there wasn't. So it's now confirmed that it's just those two for now. But I'm kind of with you in that. I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to start really small and focused and expand from there. They've identified some pressing needs. You're, I think you're, I agree with you on the attainable aspect of it all. Um, I also think that there's major fiscal considerations that they're trying to work around. In fact, the finance minister has been pretty open about that, that they're trying to work within the $800 million that they've already budgeted for this phase of things, which in the scope of a program that's been pegged at 40 plus billion is a drop in the bucket, no question. But it makes sense just to scale it up, to see how that goes. We've seen some issues when other federal programs roll out, like the childcare program, for instance, all kinds of hiccups. So for something this major, uh, I don't, I, I, you know, starting small and ramping up seems to make sense and getting buy-in from the public too. Yeah. There, there, that way. There's been quite a bit of back and forth about how the industry might react to the economics of this, Joita. How do you mm. think the pharmaceutical industry might react to this? Well, I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is, is um, not... Um, it's not the first time. This isn't their first rodeo. Let's just put it that way. I mean, out of the the developed sort of industrialized countries in the world, uh, with the exception of the U.S., Canada is one of the last to actually have a national pharmacare program. So the pharmaceutical industry does have some experience with dealing with the sort of situation. But I think if you remember, we've had... Uh, many stories in the news about pharmaceutical companies charging exorbitant prices for medication, often life-saving medication at that, and people having their backs to the wall because they have no choice but to pay those prices. I think if you look at uh, Canada becoming a significant purchaser, uh, it does uh, mean that the government would be in a better position to um, challenge pharmaceutical companies on some of those prices, and I think that's going to be a win for, uh, for Canadians. So uh, there's a lot of questions that haven't been answered. You're right. Um, it's not as widespread as maybe some people would have liked to see. It's an, uh, an impressive first step. Uh, but at least for now, it does even the playing field between these large multinational pharmaceutical companies and uh, and the average Canadian, if you've got the government coming in there as, as, a, as a significant purchaser. Just to offer a couple of uh, pieces of concrete example that Joeda alluded to there in regards to uh, stories of big price spikes, there was the EpiPen story from a couple of years ago where the prices of EpiPens spiked on users, as well as any insulin user will tell you uh, how those prices have spiked over the years as well. 
well, mm -hmm. an insulin spike, if you will. Uh, Michelle, you and I batted. Uh, I, I am full of them today. <laughs> Michelle, you and I uh, also contemplated just a smidge some of the business side of this on Monday. The reaction I find has been pretty tame throughout the week. Like Joey just said, pharmaceutical companies are no stranger to negotiating large level deals with governments. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I raised one on Monday that I've continued to hear in a really, really small corner of things uh, of individuals potentially having better access through the private plans and being concerned about losing their superior coverage through this one. Uh, I've heard that in a couple of quarters, but nothing, it hasn't been a very loud chorus. But what has been interesting to me, I don't know if you guys have, have seen this too, but the provincial reaction is interesting. Mm. We've already had a couple of provinces who are saying, who are, are basically saying they're going to opt out even at this preliminary date. Um, Alberta and Quebec have both indicated they don't want to do that. And Ontario is taking a bit of a wait and see approach on this too. So there is resistance from some of the provinces, which I find kind of interesting, but also yeah. I, I don't know how much you guys will, and like these players will change over time. So some early resistance now doesn't necessarily mean to me that it's going to be a consistent set of resistance, but we'll see what happens there, I guess. Um, and yeah, in terms of other reaction, yes, it has been pretty muted, Dave, I agree with you. In fact, um, Pierre Poilievre, the opposition leader, uh, when asked about it yesterday, declined to comment. So uh, we haven't been hearing a whole lot on the opposition front of late. It, 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 some of this stuff, child care, uh, pharmacare, dental care, you have to be careful if you're, if, you're, mm -hmm. if you're at the top of the polls. You don't want to come out and say, I'm going to cut this, I'm going to cut that, I'm going to cut this, because... This stuff is going to be fairly popular. This is going to be the right? kind of stuff yeah. that people are going to want. So you don't want to publicly come out. You, you might quibble with the way it's rolled out. You're going to wait till there's a bump in the road or a hiccup, but you don't necessarily want to come out and say, I don't want to give you these things when you're up in the polls by 17 points in the latest national <laughs> in the latest national totally. sur polling survey. Uh, Joita, whether it's provincial... In, in, in the interest of fairness, though, I do want to note that he might also have just wanted to take some time to review before weighing in. They're, 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 that is uh, all. No, that, that's not... I don't want my politicians acting like that, Michelle. I want knee-jerk reactions. Uh, Joita, whether it's federal... Pulse decisions. <laughs> whether it's federal or provincial, what's your take on the politics? Well, I mean, it's unavo it's unavoidable because when you think about the politics, it's like it's a lot like the dental care plan, right? You've got the NDP saying, look, look, we made this possible because of the confidence and supply agreement. Um, yeah. And so that's going to be something that they're going to pitch as a win. But the people who are really going to, I think, get um, to take kudos for this one is the Liberal government, which is uh, responsible for implementation. Now, the question is, how are they actually going to go about implementing it? If they completely bungle it, uh, it then that's a whole other question. But otherwise, this is something that Canadians have been asking for for a very long time, and that coupled with dental care might be a significant uh, victory that that the Liberals will hold up in the lead up to the next election. Uh, with that said, the, the, the Tory reaction isn't really all that surprising either, because Pierre Polyev doesn't want to be in the in the position of uh, getting Canadians to either it, they don't want to turn around and, and challenge it outright, obviously, um, but they also don't want to be put in a situation where people uh, are so terrified that they'll take away dental care or they'll take away pharmacare if the to Tories have voted into government uh, that you know they they voted another way. So 
it's it's clearly one of those issues that I think has a lot of of popular appeal. Uh, there's a lot of people who I think will be relieved to uh, a be able to afford what they need and b not to be at the mercy of private insurance companies. That's the other piece uh, around this. Uh, but political horse trading is, I think, just you know par for the course. Yeah, it's been uh, I, I've done this to you guys a couple times in the last few weeks. It's been the two-year anniversary of a lot of things, including the confidence mm -hmm. and supply agreements. And there's a lot for NDP leader Jagmeet Singh to hang his hat on here after the course of the last couple of years, whether it be the pushing right? through of childcare, whether it be dental care, whether it be pharmacare. Is it exactly the plan that he would want or endorse? Maybe, maybe not. But there's no matter what the outcome of the next election is for him, and no matter what the future is for him in that party, when he goes to bed at night, he can sleep well knowing that he mm. advocated for a lot of change right? in this country, transformational change. Yes. And regardless of whatever happens in any election or whatever any polling data says, that I think so, that's something that he should take a lot of pride in. A lot of pride. I agree. Oh my gosh! And he's, the way he's talked about it is even just it, going back to party history. Like his, I think his name will be mentioned. He never led the popular wave that a Jack Layton did. He wasn't as say fundamental as say a Tommy Douglas, but it was his leadership under his leadership that some of those key priorities that he says have been NDP pillars since the party's inception yeah. have been pushed through. Yeah. Pharmacare being a big one of those. So that is like it. it, it yeah, you're right. I, I think the Liberals will get the credit historically, but. I, Giving the NDP short shrift on this would not be fair either. Like I said, busy week in Ottawa. Let's pivot to something different. Earlier in the week, Canada's Justice Minister introduced the Online Harms Act. Naira Act, speak properly, Dave, you're a journalist. Naira Ahmed has the details. The Online Harms Act plans to create a digital safety commission and a new ombudsperson to advocate for users who have concerns about online safety. The long-promised Bill C-63 also seeks to amend the criminal code to introduce stiffer punishments for existing hate propaganda offences and amend the Canadian Human Rights Act to include online hate speech as discrimination. The proposed law would require companies to take down intimate images shared online without consent and content that sexually victimizes a child. Justice Minister Arif Virani took particular aim at social media companies. Profit cannot be prioritized over safety. Right now, it is too easy for social media companies to look the other way as hate and exploitation festers on their platforms. This bill will require platforms to do their part and to do better. Michelle, what's the big idea you want to explore here? So this is the second kick at the can at this particular issue for the government. So I, I thought it might be interesting to hear how everyone felt this had come along because there have there been a lot of changes. But more than that, online harm is an area that we've all had to navigate in some form, whether as a bystander or some of us even as targets, I'm afraid. Um, we know what, what, what internet culture is like. We know how toxic it can be. And this is just one of those issues where I, I, I look at all these measures and I think this is interesting and I wonder to what degree it will actually have impact. I know it's hard to speculate at this point, but th there's just there's so much here to unpack. There's so many civil liberties issues that are being raised around this already. This intersects with a lot of things and I just... 
felt that knowing this group as I do, that we might all have something to say about it. <laughs> so let's start with the effectiveness in practice, because I think mm -hmm. all three of us can acknowledge that the internet is a horrible, toxic place. Uh, as a uh, white male, I probably have a little bit of a different experience than you two do, but even <laughs> I can acknowledge that it's a pretty awful place as someone who spends a lot of time in the comments section. Uh, Joita, my bugaboo... You never learn, do you, Dave? I never learn. Joita, my bugaboo on this is that a lot of onus is going to be kicked towards the Human Rights Commission, a quasi-judicial body that's already overwhelmed with cases that invariably is going, a lot of these cases are going to end up in other courts that are already backlogged. So although the principles underlying the act make a ton of sense to me, I worry this could get bogged down in a hurry. Yeah, I mean, that's the big concern that I have, too. But they are they are creating some um, offices, as you heard in the clip off the top there, just to try and alleviate some of that burden. And my hope is that with this regulation coming, with this with this piece of legislation, uh, rather than putting the onus on the court system or burdening the court system, there will be more of an emphasis on uh, platforms having to regulate content uh, more than they all more than they already are, um, rooting out content that is harmful. Uh, sexually explicit that might target children that um, propagates hate of any kind. So if they can actually try and enforce in a way that uh, leads to regulation uh, and, and and holds platforms themselves accountable and nips the problem off at the at the root, I think that would be uh, really helpful. And I and the, the but the other problem that I see with this is that yes, granted, it's a, a way to regulate uh, Canadian websites and 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 things like that. But the internet is such a vast place. Oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just how do you actually how do you yeah. control all of it? That's my big concern. I mean, if someone's looking for that stuff, they can probably find it. This the dark web and things like that. If you if you really want the stuff, then you can go out and find it. Um, I, I just don't know how effective enforcement will be given how vast the internet is yeah. and how I suspect the sphere of influence will be very limited, uh, limited only to Canadian websites and Canadian content for the most part. A lot of VPNs out there, a lot of virtual private networks out there that can make That's this it. an even bigger uh, chasing a rabbit down mm -hmm. a hole. Uh, Michelle, effectiveness, your thought? Yeah, um, similar thoughts. I, I this will be this will be hard to enforce. I think uh, I, I the, there's some of the rationale that's gone into the new entities and resources that are being created uh, seem to have been done with some of that consultation that took place in mind. There's lots of talk around having recourse for people to have images taken down quickly uh, before they can go too viral or get too deeply embedded in the internet history. Um, so it seems like they're trying to take a broader approach and, and, and offer some more tools to address online harms in the short term, which is something that's certainly needed, uh, leaving things up to content providers and content companies to take down can can take a long while. Um, but it's it all feels a little bit nebulous, so it's hard to get a sense of the impact the other thing in terms of impact that interests me is is a little related, of course, to online harms, but it's a little more of a niche part of this whole bill. And that's all the issues around hate crimes. Uh, we've been seeing a huge spike in hate crimes that's been documented by stats and police forces across the country. And this new legislation seeks to entrench a bit of a, a harsher definition for hate crimes to peg to the Supreme Court rulings and has a lot different sentences for hate crimes. 
that's a bit interesting to me too. There's a lot of overlap with the criminal code. It's a bit confusing. Those are the pieces that has some civil rights groups up in arms at the same time though. I do find it interesting because of the climate we're in, because of the fact that hate crimes are up or alleged hate crimes are way up. And uh, historically the courts have, have, it's been difficult to sort of treat those as hate crimes. They often get talked about as mischief charges or whatnot, and hate becomes an aggravating factor at sentencing. Uh, this offers a bit of a different path, and I find that one interesting, too, in light of the climate we're in. Regulation mm. in the modern context makes sense to, to a degree that you want your government to be modernizing and evolving as society evolves. So I again, I understand the underlying principles behind the regulations that are trying to be put in place here. I took a very unfair swipe at Conservative leader Pierre Polyev a few minutes ago. Here's where I will uh, give him his credit. He came out this week and said, regulation, these are police matters. Things like child pornography, this should be the police. Harassment, stalking, these are police matters. And Joita, I find some empathy and understanding in that position because at least anecdotally people report back a lot of terrible experiences interacting with the police when they're experiencing some kind mm -hmm. of online harm yeah. and i do find the position understandable to say hey cops do your jobs mm -hmm. uh, and, and yeah i mean on 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 uh as far as pierre poliev is concerned he also just he also took a swipe at this piece of legislation without actually having read it so that you know at last and he's had to since sort of soften his criticism um that it's worth noting that a lot of the sort of tough on crime and law and order issues is pretty standard conservative speak um but the issue is complicated uh the police also has a lot on its plate and they've often not had the tools to deal with the situation adequately um and so it's not to say that it's not a police matter, but it's not just a police matter. And I think you're going to need a more sophisticated response to a problem that is uh, that has been allowed to get increasingly out of hand. Um, yeah. And so regulation is part of it as well. Uh, you know, getting the police involved in the right way at the right times in the right places is, is a part of that response. Um, but one of the good things is that, you know, they have made a, uh, amendments to the definitions of, of hate, uh, which is really important because you want to define what hate is, but you also want to define what it's not. And so by, by having this sort of narrow definition of hate, I think that would actually be uh, really helpful from a prosecution standpoint. Mm -hmm. But again, the biggest concern that I have is, you know, just what we talked about off the, off the top. I mean, you can wrangle about free speech and whether this is a, a, a police matter or a regulatory matter until we're blue in the face. But I just feel like enforcement is going to be such a challenge yeah. here that that's, that's what's going to keep me up at night. Michelle, your, your reaction to the law and order side? Yeah, I want to piggyback on something Joita said off the top. Is I kind of I I I take Pierre Polyev's point entirely, but I do feel again like like you said, Dave, this is an area where police have historically not had the resources, or the means, or the will. You know, say what you will, but there were police have not historically gotten involved or been able to do a whole lot about it. And I see value in there's a, so much of online toxicity falls in a huge gray zone. But short of criminality, right? And and I feel like some of this, some of these measures, may be better equipped to tackle things that fall within that gray zone, things that do not necessarily fall within police jurisdiction, uh, but still require some kind of action. And this could be an additional resource, perhaps that could free up some other police responsibilities. 
Um, I, 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 I think it would be, I, I see this as, as not quite the black and white issue that some people have portrayed it as. How about that? that I, I think that's a reasonable position. This segment okay. has already gone 24 minutes, but this question is worthwhile. But you, you have to promise me both. You're going to go under a minute on your answers on this one. Michelle, was the, for 30 seconds tops. Was the <laughs> online space ever truly a wonderful space or is that rose colored glasses? There were times when I had a great time. I use I I miss old timey Twitter pretty badly, to be honest. But yeah, I think that's nostalgia talking more than anything. <laughs> I Juita, I do miss the late nineties of message boards and chat rooms. Uh, but I also acknowledge that even then it was an awful place. Yes, it it has always been an awful place. It has been a terribly great place and a terribly bad place, and that's just been the nature of the internet. <laughs> it's the wonder and beauty of the internet. All right, Yay! let's log off on this topic. Coming up next, the failure of Lynx Airlines raises questions about the viability of budget airlines in Canada. Why can't they get off the ground? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joey Gupta. Let's address the next topic. Lynx Airlines is the latest failure of a Canadian budget carrier. At least eight large, low-budget airlines have failed in Canada in the last 25 years. It has industry observers scratching their heads as to why. It also has Michelle scratching her head. Michelle, what's fueling your curiosity? Oh, look at you go today. Um, yeah, I, I did. I have always been kind of perplexed by the ways in which several things that you think would be slam dunks to succeed in Canada never quite make it off the ground. That's just these airlines is one example. So many examples in the retail space. I'm sure we could each come up with at least two or three if we tried. Uh, restaurant chains that don't seem to stick. They're all retail-based, but they don't seem to to be able to get a foothold here. And I find this constantly fascinating. And since my colleague Chris Reynolds had taken the time to uh, write an article probing this exact question about why Lynx Air had failed at this time and why I was the latest in joining this company of those that folded, um, I there were some theories presented in the article, but I also just wanted to get everyone else's take on this because I, I, I'm genuinely kind of puzzled. I'm sure the demand is there. To, to me, the economic basics seem to be in place, but clearly they aren't because time and again, things don't work out. Michelle, before I give Joy the opportunity to respond, lay out a couple of those theories. Sure. Um, an interesting one has to do with Canada's geography. Uh, there's a sense that perhaps airlines... It, markets like the United States can get established by ha establishing a number of direct flights between popular destinations, building up their coffers and then branching out from there. Mm. And in Canada, a lot of those opportunities don't exist. The sort of shorter haul routes like Toronto, Montreal, there's only so many of those. Um, so that often keeps people limited to be regional players. So that's one that I found to be an interesting theory. Um, another one that was interesting and that's aviation specific is uh, the airport taxes mm -hmm. that are charged here mm -hmm. in Canada relative to other countries. Uh, so those are those are. Interesting. So those are just a couple, but I would 
check out Chris's article. It's a good piece. Yeah, it, oh, it's a very good piece. Well, you alluded to it though. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to get yeah, to no, state no, it. No, got to give was, the that examples. Was the that was, that was for the listeners. Yeah, got to, got to get, got to, got to cite the examples. Uh, Joita, I've got a thought that's a little bit different than the theories that were explored in Chris Reynolds' piece. But what's your thought on why these budget airlines just can't seem to stay off the ground in Canada? Well, the reason they haven't taken off, I think, has a lot to do with Air Canada. I mean, it's just so big and it's monopolized um, air travel in Canada. You know, you love them or hate them. Uh, you know, it's either Air Canada or WestJet are your two alternatives uh, for, you know, for Canadian carriers. And I think that coupled with airline taxes and um, the lack of secondary airports means that if you're a, a new arrival in the space, you've got an uphill battle to get established in an already really well-established industry. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like the telecom sector, right? Like you've got Bell, you've got Rogers, you've got, you know, uh, the couple of big giant players there. And it's just, it's, you can't, you groceries too. And at the moment you get these behemoth players in the game, it's very hard for somebody else to get a toehold. I mean, Porter is an interesting example because uh, Porter was able to take advantage of the Island airport in Toronto and has some independence from uh, Air Canada in that respect. But I don't know if Porter Airlines would have succeeded if they had to compete with Air Canada at Lester, at Pearson Airport and have to pay those exorbitant, um, you know, airport taxes. So, uh, you know, it's 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 also interesting. And I think it's mentioned in the article that nonprofits, uh, that, that airports in Canada are actually nonprofits, which I hadn't known. And the federal government doesn't really fund them. So yeah. I don't know where you go. I don't know where you go with this, you know, to be honest with you. Mm. Okay, I, I think that you two have both laid out some really good macroeconomic cases. But, Joita, I'm so glad you mentioned Porter Airlines because they emerged as a player in this space that was budget-friendly but offered an incredible service to regional travelers and have now since expanded a little bit more nationally. I don't know if you guys have dabbled in some of these budget airlines, but the service experience is horrendously bad horrendously bad. You can't even bring a carry-on bag without paying for it. You can't get help checking in without paying for it. You can't do a phone call about your reservation without paying for it. And gosh forbid there's a problem with one of your planes, you're stranded for at least 24 hours because they don't have enough machinery to get to where you are to get you out of there. The I would, I would I would suggest to you that Canadians do have an appetite for more budget friendly travel, but the experience has to be good, Michelle. I think you can make a pretty good case there. Porter is kind of the exception that proves the rule. I think free They're beer. The only one. Who's to argue with that? You know what? I, I weirdly I've never flown Porter, but I've also never heard anything bad from those who have. Um, so I think you might be onto something there. I think service service matters, and 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 I think that would come through too when you are traveling these huge geographic distances. If you're taking a flight from Halifax to Vancouver, that's solid. What six seven hours in the air? I want a little bit of a comfort. <laughs> I, I, I will I will pay a little more to to make a to make sure I get there and to minimize the the 
the hell that is airport yeah. travel. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to mention the airline. I will say, though, $106 for a round-trip uh, fare to Halifax a couple summers ago was an amazing fare at face value until we couldn't get home on Sunday. So that ended up being a little bit of a scramble. So then you spent $500 buying a last-minute one-way oh. ticket to get back to Toronto because people have jobs and whatnot that they have yeah. to do. Uh, you both alluded to the general economics of the Canadian economy that lacks a bunch of competition in a whole mess of spaces across the economy. Michelle, why do you think that is? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we answer. can leave it there. Can we can leave it there. Theorize. I don't know. Well, you posed the question in the email thread. I did, but I don't like I, you guys are smarter than me for one thing. Okay. That's, um, that's I, 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 I too just, far. I mean, oh. but truly like I, I, I've, I've never quite understood why Canada has evolved as a space, but so little competition. It is, as we pointed out, a factor in several industries. Uh, one where it's also present, but doesn't seem to be as problematic as in our finances. Our banking sector is, is very confined to, to a handful of players, but more than in airlines or groceries or some of these other spaces we've talked about. This is just the way our economy seems to have evolved. I don't know why, but it is interesting to me that the Competition Bureau has become a lot more active and vocal in recent years. Joita, population density may have something to do with That's it, but, think, yeah. but, but you also referred to the notion of oligopolies that exist all across the economy, sort of several companies that dominate an entire sphere, and it's just really hard to break through in, in, an, in an era of deep brand recognition when certain oligopolies have had 50, 60, 70 years of a head start in terms of brand recognition. Yeah, I mean, that's a really big part of it. And I think you we did, we should actually really talk more about population density because that's it. You know, Canada is the world's second largest country in terms of geography, but we have a very small population. <laughs> like in tiny. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so where does that leave uh, um, someone who's trying to set up any kind of a national company, whether it's an airline or buses or you know, even the postal service or banking is a really good example. I can't remember how however many months ago we had a chat about uh, some you know uh, banks closing uh, branches in Newfoundland, I think it was. And so mm, the yes. the capital that you have to invest to create infrastructure across the country is so huge that not every player is able to put that kind of capital on the table, which would go a long way in explaining why we have uh, this oligarchy and we don't have more competition and why the, the competition bureau has become more uh, active in a bid to try and introduce more competition. I mean, the, the problem with airlines is, you know, the Air Canada and 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 WestJet is far more is, it has you know ha, is large enough that they can actually compete with some of these budget airlines if they want to. And frankly, I mean, service uh, whether it's Air Canada, WestJet, or even a budget airline across the board, I think service or a lack of service is a problem that Canadians have been complaining about all the time. So I'm not sure that that's the explanation that I would go for. The biggest sort of the biggest deterrent to, uh, to budget travel in Canada, if you want to just go there for a minute, I think has to do with the fact that um, so many people are woken up to horror stories where the next day, you know, the, where they cancel flights where the company's gone under and you've not been able to recover your money and there's no way to fly you from A to B. I think just the, the fact that these companies have such a hard time gaining a foothold, uh, which is the problem. Uh, is also not inspiring the kind of consumer confidence that would have allowed for more uh, for more options to take off or for more competition mm -hmm. to foster. Like, would you want to put your 
fate and the you know, would you want to would you want to lean on Dave Airlines, for example? Oh, you, you do not. Go, you do not. If you knew if you knew it was going to go under the next day, probably not. <laughs> I assure you, it would go under. There would be all kinds of uh, there would be all kinds of shenanigans and chicanery. There would be golden parachutes left, right, and center for the CEO of Dave Brown Airlines. All right, let's land the plane on this topic. Coming up after the break, the CEO of Kellogg's says families struggling financially should have cereal for dinner. Don't worry, not going to spend a whole bunch of time dunking on the CEO. I've got a more fun question for you. How do you feel about breakfast any time of the day? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic on deck. Kellogg's CEO, Gary Pilnick, is having a bad week on social media. He publicly commented that families struggling financially should just have cereal for dinner. I don't think we should spend much or any time dunking on this guy. It's obviously out of touch, but there are some flakes worth chewing. Breakfast oh, wow. for dinner. <laughs> Michelle, cereal any time of the day, yay or nay? I've been known to jump into a bowl of shreddies at uh, odd hours. See, okay, cereal for me, nay. Breakfast, though, heck yes. Omelets for dinner, hook me up anytime. Um, I, I'm just not a huge cereal person, but like as a concept, I'm all over it. So if you, if, if you do cereal at 8 p.m., you do you. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate you allowing me to live my life the way that I want to live it like a college <laughs> you're, you're, student. You're, you're so welcome. <laughs> even, if, even at 40 years old. Okay, Joita, Michelle opened the full Pandora's box there. Cereal any time of the day or even breakfast any time of the day. Some 6 p.m. waffles, uh, bacon and eggs for dinner, French toast, yeah. grilled cheese. Yeah, Ooh. absolutely. I mean, it sounds good to me. And there are a lot of people who enjoy breakfast or dinner. Why not? It's a free country. Uh, the cereal thing is a little more complicated because it is a lot cheaper. Um, and often it's the only thing that someone either with very little money or very little time to cook uh, will will lean on. So you can't just say, oh, you know, yes, people can have cereal for dinner, uh, but it may not always be a choice that people want to make. It might often just be a choice that they have to make because yeah. they have to run to class or get to like, you know, their night shift job. So it's a little more complicated. Yeah. I was delighted when I saw my shreddies on sale this week for $2.99 for the family size box. So I grabbed a couple of those. I mean, very happy. Okay, this is the bigger thought. And y'all have heard me rant about this before. Joita, when will society begin catering more to all types of food cravings 24 hours a day? Forget all day breakfast. When will fast food giants start offering all day burgers? And Joita, as you know, this is part of my larger thought about a 24 hour society. Why isn't public transit running 24 hours a day why are you limiting me to eggs from 6 to 11 a.m economics ah. uh, 
That's it. I mean, it come and I think it's self-explanatory. I mean, does the demand uh, justify the expense? You know, having a 24-hour restaurant open means you have to justify paying the staff and having, you know, uh, all that extra food that someone may or may not want to buy at whatever time of day. But I think that's all changing, especially with uh, all these delivery apps. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, with the delivery app, if you um, want to have a restaurant, you could hypothetically rent just a commercial kitchen and rely entirely on the app for your business. And so you could have a business bottle, which in theory could supply people with burgers or biryani at seven in the morning because that's what someone's craving. But you don't have to really worry about the expense of keeping a restaurant open because you don't have a restaurant. You just have a kitchen somewhere. Michelle, what's your appetite for a more 20-hour, a 24-hour-a-day friendly food society? Yeah, I'm kind of with Joita. I feel like we're on our way, at least in Toronto. I, again, I, and we have to recognize that some, some of these cities where Uber Eats have gotten established feel like, probably feel like totally different planets from other places without those options. But I'm interested less in, in 24-hour access to fast food and just broader variety of food options that are available more broadly for everyone. So like different cultural offerings, different price points. Again, same issues economically. That's going to be hard to swing, but I'd be more interested in in, in let's say having a broader variety of of food options that are more culturally appropriate that aren't necessarily 24 hours a day, but available more widely and and for longer than being able to get a burger at three in the morning. That's my personal priority. Michelle, (laughs) one of the reasons why I find this to be such a fascinating idea to continue to re-explore is that more and more and more, the notion of working in the seven to three, eight to four, nine to five window just is not what it used to be, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. like, like there's exactly. been a societal shift in the way that work is spooled out. And I've, mm-hmm. and I, and as someone who's done some jobs where I've worked bizarro hours, like I've done from three in the morning to 11 a.m., I've done from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shifts, I've done graveyard yeah. shifts, I've been everywhere. And Michelle, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, when you start living that life, you have this appreciation for the number of other people who live that life and are just looking for a little it's, bit more 24-hour variety out in the world, not like locked in your apartment. No, you know what? You're totally right. And I'm, I'm thinking back to my days on the overnight shift. We were working uh, one to eight at that point. And the 24-hour Tim Hortons across the street for, was the only game in town. But boy, were we grateful for it. So yeah, you know what? You're onto something there. That's a very good point. Yeah, Juita, that's one of the reasons why I keep re-exploring this. I 100% acknowledge your economics arguments, but I'm also someone who believes in the if you build it, they will come, especially in the evolving nature of the way time is deployed in our society. Yeah, and work is deployed. You're no longer constrained by boundaries. You could be working a job in Japan from the comfort of your home right? Mm-hmm. So ours will sync up to whatever time it is in Japan. So yeah, the times, they are a-changing. Oh, doing a little Dylan reference on the way out. That's my kind of news panel. Joita, thank you for this. Have a lovely weekend. Talk to you next thank week. You, you too. And thank Michelle, you, you, too. you enjoy your weekend as well. I'll drop you a line on Sunday and talk to you Monday morning. Look forward to it. Take care, everyone. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. And Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, several provinces dropped their budgets yesterday. I've got a few of the highlights. And then Brock Richardson stops by for some sports talk. The men's curling world in Canada has its attention on the briar. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Thank you.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca or on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, March 1st, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, sports reality and documentary series are making a big splash on TV. Greg David considers why they have such broad appeal beyond sports fans. And... Oh, I'm excited about this. Dune Part 2 comes out this weekend. Laura Bain has some of the buzz on the sci-fi action flick. Oh, I'm so excited. So excited. It's remarkable how much I enjoyed a three-hour movie that was only part one of a two-part series that was somewhat devoid of action. So I am pumped for part two. I've already made the investment. I might even rewatch part one just to make sure my brain's in the right headspace. But not to get too deep into the sands of doom. Let's start the hour with the regional news updates. Beginning in the prairies, the Alberta government has tabled its budget. Bill Graveland has the details. Alberta Finance Minister Nate Horner says increased debt servicing costs and lower-than-expected oil revenues has forced the government to make some tough decisions. The health department's budget will be increased by 4.4% with a similar increase for education. But a long-planned hospital for South Edmonton has been halted and a promised tax cut for lower-income Albertans will be delayed by two years. Bill Graveland the Canadian press. Over to the Atlantic provinces in other budget news, Nova Scotia has rolled out its budget. Keith Doucette has the highlights. With projected revenues of $15.8 billion, the government is projecting a deficit of $467.4 million for fiscal 2024-25. There is $7.3 billion for the health system, and the big-ticket cost-of-living measure will see personal income tax brackets indexed to Nova Scotia's inflation rate beginning January 1st at a cost of $160 million a year by 2028. Other support measures include $84.6 million to address homelessness. There is also $18.8 million for a long-promised school lunch program to be rolled out over four years. Keith Doucette, the Canadian Press, Halifax. And finally, in Quebec, the Quebec Court of Appeal has ruled that the province's secularism law is constitutional. Lisa Laporte takes a closer look. The province's highest court upheld much of a 2021 Quebec Superior Court ruling which said the law's use of the notwithstanding clause overrode infringements of fundamental rights. It's a victory for the Quebec government which had appealed the ruling on the grounds a provincial law must apply equally across the province. The 2019 law declares the province is a secular state and includes a provision prohibiting public sector workers in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols on the job. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Thank you very much, Lisa. That's your look at the regional news. Let's chat about sports with Brock Richardson. Brock, Canadian curling fans got about four days to catch their breath and polish their stones, and now it's the men's turn to get together for the Briar Championship. What are the big storylines going into the Briar? Uh, I would say the first big storyline is the fact that Brad Gushu is going for Team Canada for his sixth uh, title, which would be a record on the uh, men's side of things. I think the other... Uh, sort of storyline for Team Ontario 
on the men's side is that Glenn Howard is supposed to be playing with his brother. However, there's a bit of a knee injury, so it remains to be seen how much, if at all, he will be playing. Uh, Yeah, it's just going to be a very fascinating story, but I think there's three sort of very cut and dry teams that you would look at and say these are the top three on each pool side that you would look for. First of all, in pool A, you would look at Alberta's Brendan Botcher uh, being there in the top three of that pool. You would look at um, Manitoba's uh, Matt Dunstone and Manitoba's Brad Jacobs, who apparently moved from Ontario. So that's also a storyline there Manito- as well. Manitoba gets two teams? Yes, because it goes based on it goes based on ranking now and points that you receive. So that's it's very weird how they're doing the uh, the briar now, but it goes based on ranking and what you've earned prior to. So I feel yeah. like I feel like if your name's Matt Dunstone, you were put on this earth to be a curler, right? Like it, it's just it writes itself. Uh, and then uh, Pool B, you would obviously, as I mentioned. Look at uh, Brad Gushu heading up that pool as well. Um, and then you'd look at Kevin Cooey being your your uh, next choice for first or second place. And then third, another really interesting curling name would be Mike McEwen. I think, again, another one of these guys who's been born to play curling. I, I just feel curler in the name McEwen there as well, Dave. It really, uh, it really feels like the the marquee stars. It's not surprising the national championship is a series of marquee stars, but it really feels right now the health of men's curling across the country. There are probably what five, six, seven teams who could win this whole thing, Brock. Probably, yeah. And I just probably gave you the the top six that I would I would view. There's probably one or two others that you could add, but those are my top six. All right. And conveniently, they're the top six in uh, men's men's curling, so that makes it pretty simple. Okay, so Brock is picking chalk. There you go. Just work off the rankings, and then you know who's good. I like that. That's a very efficient way to do these things. All right, Brock, let's uh, change gears here ever so slightly. In about 40 minutes, Greg David is stopping by to talk about the rise of sports reality and documentary series. Think things like uh, F1 Drive to Survive on Netflix that has simultaneously become a very popular show and increased the profile of Formula One racing. Instead of asking you what sports documentaries you like, because, Brock, you and I would be here all day just listing off sports documentaries that are amazing, I'm making you put on your broadcaster and producer hat. What is a team or event or period of time in sports that you think could warrant a long-form sports documentary? I look at the 2010 uh, men's ice hockey program where they ultimately ended up winning gold with the famous golden goal scored by Sidney Crosby. But if you remember, Dave, Sidney Crosby did virtually nothing uh, on the score sheet up until this gold medal game. And I would suggest to you that there would have been some pretty tense moments and tense conversations behind the scenes. So for me, this would be one that I would lean to and would want to see kind of what went on behind the scenes that we didn't see because ultimately what we talk about is, well, they won the gold medal, he scored the golden goal, and that'd be that. But I remember everybody talking prior to that that Sidney Crosby was not doing Sidney Crosby things 
during that event up until that moment. Would you just want to focus on Team Canada and their 2010 run at the Olympics? Or would you want to look, take a closer look at the tournament as a whole? Because the hockey was exceptional. I remember the round robin of that tournament aligned with my spring break at Algonquin College that year. And I consumed every single second of every single game and pretty much every game was top tier elite hockey. Yeah, I'm like you. I it was uh during uh my my spring break as well and I really enjoyed just taking it all in. I, I would look at the overall um tournament. I think it was I agree with you, it was top notch stuff, but overall uh tournament I would look at, but I would title my documentary quite obviously the golden goal, uh, which it didn't take much brain power for wow. me to do that. Up all, but, night, uh, up all yeah. night thinking about that one. <laughs> yeah, 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 but that's what I would do with this one, and that's my choice um, that I would pick. Mine also comes from the hockey world. Surprise, surprise, a bunch of Canadian sports fans want to make documentaries about hockey. Mine's a little different, though, Brock. This year will mark the 10th anniversary of the Los Angeles Kings winning the Stanley Cup. It's not so much that every Stanley Cup team shouldn't have a documentary made about them, but there was something really unique about that LA Kings team. The first and foremost being is they're one of only four teams in NHL history to come back from an 0-3 series deficit and win it in seven games. They did that in the first round against the San Jose Sharks. They then proceeded to have a crackerjack of a series against the Anaheim Ducks, a battle of L.A. in the second round, where the last game represented Timu Solani, the Finnish Flashes, last ever game in the NHL. So they retired Timu Solani along the way. And then the third round series was a seven-game monster, maybe the best hockey series ever played between the Chicago Blackhawks, who were right in the middle of their dynasty, going up against the LA Kings dynasty. And there was all this cross-pollination of storylines for those two teams because both of those teams, the Blackhawks and the Kings, were comprised of mostly Team Canada and Team USA hockey players who had just played for a gold medal a few few months earlier in Sochi, Russia. So there's all these little subplots and sub-stories that you could tell within the overall arching story of that documentary. It's not strictly, here's the results of the game and the Kings won this series. It's all the people and personalities and histories that connect throughout this storyline. If I worked for Sportsnet, if I worked for Rogers and had the resources for all the tape that would be available from that Stanley Cup playoffs, I think you could make an absolutely killer documentary. Wasn't that also the year that the LA Kings were eighth? In the, no, in the that was 2012. That was 2012 uh, when okay. they won from the eighth seed. Okay, because I knew that was close in and around there. But yeah, no, I mean, there's all kinds of storylines that you could you could pick from the one you just you just said. So yeah, I would agree with you. But now that I know that that's uh, the 2012 team that I'm thinking, of, that would be another one that I would put a documentary on. Is that LA Kings team coming all the way from being the eighth seed and all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals? So well, lots of good choices. I I think that is certainly an underlying thread that could be pulled at in the documentary that I want to make. By the way, called the Coronation 
because it's about the Kings. And I get that. Yeah, I'm funny. I'm funny. Like that. <laughs> yeah. but, but the notion of a team that people thought was a fluke in 2012 and then went off into the wilderness in 2013 and 2014, they were, they were considered a real fluke. People thought it was a miracle. They won that playoff, that Stanley Cup in 2012. So to me, that's part of the story as well, especially in the first episode when you're telling the story of a team down 0-3 in the first round to their rival San Jose. Like, like there, there is so much rich subtext to pull at that I think would just make for a remarkable documentary. The Coronation, if there's any millionaires or billionaires out there who want to fund this for me, uh, Dave.Brown at AMI.ca. Hey, Brock, have a, a lovely weekend, sir. Take it easy. I love the plug at the very end. Appreciated that as well. Well, you know, if, somebody, if somebody wants to email me, they are welcome to do so. You can send your Intrac e-transfer right to it there as well. Uh, <laughs> I want to remind you about the Daily Poll, which you can find on social media at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. The Global Day of Unplugging starts today at sundown. How long could you go without using your devices? A few hours, a day, a few days, or longer? longer. If social media is not your thing, you can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or give the show a ring-a-ding-a-dingin 1-866-509-4545 Got a song stuck in my head this morning. It's a Britney Spears song. Why don't you guess via those points of contact as well? What Britney Spears song got stuck in Dave's head this morning? Coming up after the break, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The mystery of the Britney Spears song that is stuck in my head is titillating the casting crew of the show. You'll find out the answer by the end of this segment. But before you get that, let's talk to Alex Smythe about the weather. Alex, your gaze is out east this morning. Yeah, Dave, because uh, the last time I was on, I, I gave a, a forecast of what to expect for spring. And I mentioned the fact that we should expect unpredictability in our weather forecast this time of year. The Maritimes have been experiencing unpredictability unlike any other region so far, because yesterday they've experienced a flash storm that was subsequently followed by a snap freeze in the region. So power outages, school closures, even some evacuations were needed because there were uh, regions or, or parts of the region that got over 100 millimeters of rain yesterday from the storm. New Brunswick was the hardest hit area and Sussex, uh, the town of Sussex required evacuations due to flooding in the area. Now that rain continued to move eastward into Newfoundland and Labrador uh, later into Thursday. But what followed after the rain cleared out was a severe drop in temperature. We're talking a 20 degree drop 
from being in the positives to now feeling in like the minus 10s or minus 12, 15. Yeah, not, dis result. not dissimilar to what we had happen in Toronto on Wednesday or the folks in Montreal had happen uh, on Thursday. Exactly. So again, this is really kind of recycling that that unpredictability and that just like back and forth yo-yoing that is happening with the weather. So as a result, all that rain, all that moisture is now being turned to ice and that's snap free. So that's that's creating even more havoc in the region as a result. And uh, so, you know, places like the Gaspé region in New Brunswick, they're feeling a high of a minus 11 today. Halifax, a high of minus five. Charlottetown, a high of minus nine. The one good thing I will say, there is a bit of positivity here, is that cold snap is not expected to linger long. And places within the region this weekend, you'll get back up into those positive uh, temperatures, maybe even double digits this weekend. So, you know, even though you, you got that sudden shock of cold weather, this weekend we'll get back to what it was before on the positive side of things. So even though it's just a quick reminder that winter is in fact still here and still going to have an impact for the next few months. Well, yeah, it's not spring yet. Spring's on March 21st. I know that's one of your personal bugaboos as well. But, uh, <laughs> but hey, uh, nothing about Laura Bain without Laura Bain. Laura, you're on the ground in Halifax. What's your experience with this uh, precipitation and cold snappery? Yeah, it's definitely been all over the place. You know, last week we saw some really warm temperatures up to about 10 degrees, I think it was on Wednesday. So, um, you know, the positive thing I can say is that it's gotten rid of all of, well, pretty much all of the snow that's been around, at least in my neighborhood. I did ask my parents, they still have some snow they can see in their neighborhood. But when I look out of my window, the snow's all gone on the sidewalk. So um, I've been feeling pretty good about that. It's weird that it was like warm the last Last couple days and now today when I checked it was minus 22 this morning with oh. the wind chill oh. um yeah very strange but uh tomorrow it's supposed to get back up to pause like plus six or something and same thing mm -hmm. on Sunday so I don't know. Uh, probably not getting out for not getting out too much today. I, I told I told Elizabeth the story of my my Wednesday workday. I walked to work in a t-shirt. I walked home wearing multiple layers, and I was still shivering. So uh, yeah, definitely a bit of a weird system passing through. Okay, Alex, what Britney Spears song is stuck in my head? Uh, you know, my guess was toxic because that's always the one that gets stuck in my head. It's a great song, but not stuck in my head. Often stuck in my head, but not today. Laura Bain, what Britney Spears song is stuck in my head? Uh, oops, I did it again. Also very popular. The cut's a little deeper than that, though. She's so lucky. She's a star, <laughs> but she cries, cries, cries with the lonely heart singing. I'll stop. Uh, Alex, talk to you in a little bit. Laura, don't go too far because you're back for an entertainment report in one minute. But first, vintage video games are filling up online marketplaces. Mike Dubusky tells you about one specific genre in tech trends. From ABC News Tech Trends, Pokemon is celebrating 25 years in America in 2024. And with the original games now considered vintage, are they worth anything? The cartridges that, you know, that you kept as a kid are not going to have a ton of value. Nat Turner is the CEO of Collectors. He says the few Pokemon games that do see high valuation are generally unopened copies. It's going to be the for some reason, you know, someone bought three copies, gave two as a gift, and kept one in their attic for 40, 30 years. 
um, that's going to be the value. And there's just haven't been that many of them to trade on the Pokemon game side to prove the, the value curve. But that doesn't mean there isn't a market for classic video games. A lot of the vintage video games we see are frankly older than you would think, like the 25 year mark. You know, they're the the Zelda first edition and, you know, stuff like that. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. It's probably a matter of precisely what you consider valuable. Not sure if any of you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex still use your Nintendo 64s. But if you want to buy a copy of Super Smash Brothers for the Nintendo 64, you're spending upwards of two, three, four hundred dollars for a copy of the game. So there is stuff that is about 25 years old that'll definitely cost you a pretty penny, but maybe not the uh, $1.2 million that uh, some Pokemon card collections are valued at. Uh, Laura Bain, that uh, topic hit a little bit of a nerve for me, so I wanted to talk about it, but let's turn to the world of movies. Dune Part 2 is out in theaters. You've got some of the buzz. Yeah, definitely the biggest theatrical release of the weekend. As most folks will know, it is a sci-fi action film mm -hmm. based on the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert. I don't know. Some people might not know what it is. <laughs> um, just to give a very brief uh, plot synopsis. Oh, it's set oh in the good luck. Good luck with this, Laura. I... Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to capture it, but it's, it's set on the desert planet Arrakis. I think that is something to know about it is that it's set in the desert. Uh, that's, you know, Dune. Uh and it follows part of uh, Paul, oh boy, Artrides. Am I saying that right? Paul Art Artrides? 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 Artrides. As, as he unites with Chaunty and the Fremen on a warpath of revenge against the conspirators who destroyed his family. So, uh, classic underlying oh, plot. Anyway. That's actually, and, Laura, that's actually, it's, uh, by Dune standards, that's actually a great <laughs> summation of the plot. Well done. I was oh, so good. glad you Thank didn't you. try to make me explain it this morning. I would have gotten so lost so fast. It was sort of a, a, a conglomeration of uh, little things I, I read about it. So uh, directed by Denny Villeneuve. And we have a trailer to play for this film. And I'm going to just set it up first with a little bit of pre-description. Uh, so Timothy Chalamet, who plays the main character, Paul, narrates, a large group of army men are seen standing in line. There's a close-up of an intricate ring smoke is in the air a portrait of the character's father is on the wall a woman hits a man on the head with a rock oh no people are at war a plane goes on fire let's give it a watch and or listen depending on what is available to you this world is beyond cruelty You've been fighting the Harkonnens for decades. My family's been fighting them for centuries. They were massacred. Alongside my father. Your father didn't believe in revenge. We believe in Fremen. Let me fight beside you. Oh, I'm excited. So uh, part one of this film came out in 2021. Dave, you've seen it. I have not seen it. Are you keen to go see part two? I am beyond keen to go see part two, but you know my policy. I don't like seeing movies on opening weekend because I don't like the unwashed masses, uh, even when mm. I'm going to see it in uh, VIP cinemas. 
that said, Laura, I did not think I was going to like the first one because I've not read the book. I've not seen the original film that was put out in the 1980s. I thought, Game of Thrones in space, this is going to be silly. And within minutes, I was 100% totally hooked because the acting was unbelievable. The distilling of very complicated storytelling was handled immaculately and it just hooked me in for three hours. And Laura, I'm ready for three more hours. Like I am beyond excited to see where they want to take the story from here. And a lot of that has to be a credit to director Denis Villeneuve, who is one of the best in the business, point final. Right. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, this film comes in at two hours and 46 minutes. And for me, that is just way too long to sit in a theater personally. If there was an intermission, perhaps, but I start to get anxious, I'm going to have to find the washroom. How am I going to find my seat? I'm going to have to interrupt the person I'm with. So I like to keep it sort of two hours or less if I'm uh, going to the theater. But I think for me, what kind of piques my interest, if anything does about this, is the actual landscape where it was shot. It was uh, mostly shot in the desert outside of Abu Dhabi. So I think there'll be some uh, beautiful, beautiful landscapes to see in the film. Uh, but reviews on the film are pretty positive and kind of reflecting a lot of what you've said about the first one, Dave. People are saying this is going to be bigger and bolder, that it's visually stunning. It's got strong acting. Where I have seen a few criticisms come in is uh, just in the handling of some of the political nature of the plot mm, in the book, mm. that maybe it fell a little bit flat or was a little bit plated a little bit safe in terms of uh, in terms of that. Now, if you want to watch Doom Part 1 before heading to go see Doom Part 2, you're going to have to rent it on Amazon Prime or another service like Apple TV. But kind of interesting, Netflix dropped the original 1984 David Lynch Doom movie <laughs> on Netflix uh, like today. It's out today on Netflix. So I guess if you want just like a free version of getting familiar with the plot, you could you could go with that <laughs> Netflix. Obviously trying to cash in on some of the Dune buzz happening this weekend. A, a cult classic, the 1984 version, but it's my understanding that it is almost unwatchable because it tried to bite <laughs> off a little bit more than it could chew. I mean, just the reality that Denis Villeneuve gets t six hours to tell this story and David Lynch tried to tell it in two probably tells you that there, there may have been some uh, complications along the way, let alone the practical and visual effects. Laura, I'm so glad glad that you identified the need to pee on a uh, longer movie. I am 100% in the camp that says if a movie is going to be longer than two hours, there needs to be an intermission. Because once you factor in the previews and the 77 commercials you're going to see before the previews even start, the bathroom becomes a necessity during the film, especially if you're going to have a nice uh, soda pop alongside your uh, popcorn. I, uh, I, I'm 100% here for bringing back intermissions. Doesn't need to be a long one, maybe 10 minutes, because you don't want to give the smokers enough time to go outside because they'll get hung up and they'll mess things up. Just enough time for everybody to go to the bathroom and maybe get a little extra popcorn or soda pop. I think they need to bring intermissions back on movies that go longer than two hours. 
Yeah, oh, for sure. And I think it becomes an accessibility issue, especially if you have any challenges kind of independently leaving the theater and going to the washroom. And now that you say that, I think they used to do that, they like did. back in the they day, did. right? I'm thinking of that, let's all go to the lobby and have ourselves some snacks. You know, let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the <laughs> lobby. <laughs> Bring that back. Well, I'm singing in this segment. You're singing in this segment. Yeah, I, I was watching a Spartacus on Netflix a couple years ago. And even in the digital form of the movie, they still had a five-minute intermission that played in the middle of the Netflix stream. I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to go get a drink yeah. from the fridge. You don't even have to find your phone or whatever to pause it. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, with that. I was I'm blown away. Hey, Laura, thank you for everything this week. Have a lovely weekend. Talk to you on Monday. Thanks, Dave. You as well. And if I do go hang out with the unwashed masses, the plebeians, uh, and see Dune on Saturday or Sunday, I will give you the one or two sentence review on Monday, but no promises. I, I don't like being at movies on opening weekend. There's too many of you, and I need peace and quiet to enjoy myself. Coming up after the break, Alex Smythe is moving. He's going to talk about some of his feelings ahead of the move, and he's forcing me to relive the stress of my awful 2020 move. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe, changes are brewing in your life and you're seeking some guidance or at the very least empathy. Yeah, Dave, I'm set to move this weekend into my new place. And, you know, it is a time of excitement, but also like... Uh, a ton of stress uh, going on, as we all know, having moved in uh, different stages in our lives. So especially for myself and as someone who can't drive, you know, there's all the stresses around that you have to rely on other people to be able to physically transport your items. And so I'm just thankful I, I got family and friends I can rely on. But I wanted to kind of pull from uh, everyone else's experience in moving, like the positive, maybe the not so positives as well, and kind of get your guys' perspectives on on moving. So, Nusreen, let's start with you on this. Like, how do you go about tackling the moving process? Because you moved fairly recently. Yeah, so I, I'm pretty much a, of a planner in general for everything. Um, so when something goes wrong, if something doesn't come on time, if, if the dates change, I immediately panic and stress out and you have to expect that. Unfortunately, I expected it. Yes. Yeah. I still stressed out about it. Um, but there's ups and ups and downs when it comes to these things and, you know, moving, it's exciting. It's something new. It's, you know, you get to redecorate, you get to, make yourself feel right at home in a new space. It's, it's cozy. The downside, there are a few things that you have to factor in. I didn't think that I would need to order furniture beforehand, like a while beforehand. I ordered a couch two months in advance and it still was like a month and a half late 
to coming. Uh, so it, in total, it was three months and a half of waiting for just one three-seater couch. And the whole time we were just sitting on picnic chairs for nice, <laughs> for that time. Nice, when ghetto, I love it. I loved it. It was it, we had a small coffee table, two picnic chairs, and that was it in the whole apartment. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, there are some things that you have to factor in that I just didn't expect. I mean, during COVID, it was very known that furniture takes time to to come. But, you know, COVID is pretty much not in the factor anymore. So so in my mind, I was like, I don't, I don't have to worry about this. So, okay, this is the date. And they're like, okay, you have to wait this long. And I'm like, okay, all right. Okay, so Nazreen's um, so bougie, bougie couch caused her some trouble. <laughs> but Alex, I think that's kind of uh, what you're driving at here in terms of the disability experience of not being able to drive. From our perspective as people who are blind and low vision, we become reliant on other people mm -hmm. to help us out with a set of wheels, right? We may be physically strong enough to move a couch, but not to carry it down a highway or a main street and bring it in and bring it into our into our new place. Speak that, for yourself, Dave. Okay, all right. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go. <laughs> Nazreen's going to come to the gym with me on Monday and we're going to clang and bang together at 4 a.m. in the morning, do some bench pressing together. But yeah, mm -hmm. Alex, I, I think fundamentally that that's where this is at. There's a lot of positions that you're left in as a person with a disability when it comes to moving where you feel very vulnerable and you're not necessarily able to control your own destiny. You're depending upon other people. The way that I tackled this, even though it still went miserably, my move from Ottawa to Toronto in 2020, checklist, you got to have a checklist. You got to know every single thing you need to do and just start marking them off. Crush, 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 and appreciating the small victories along the way. Oh, yeah. And, and I have been doing that. Like, I've, I've been building checklists for, like, a few weeks ever since we, we kind of secured the place and knew we, we would have the uh, kind of move-in date of March, like, March 1st slash, like, you know, the beginning of March. So um, that's that's certainly something I've been mindful of. And then it's like, okay, trying to figure out the furniture. And the other factor to this is it's me and my girlfriend moving in together. We're coming from two separate locations. So you're combining two different households, two different, you know, spots. And on top of it, her schedule is not exactly lined up with mine. So there's a lot of, like, we're moving in over the course of a few days as a result because uh, she's working. She's a nurse. She works like full 12 hour shifts. So I'm basically moving my stuff in tomorrow. She's going to move her stuff in on Sunday. We have like, okay, coordinating the internet to come on the Sunday. We, yeah, we're, yeah. We've ordered a mattress. Okay, well, we'll get them to come on the Sunday as well. So it's like trying to arrange all these different factors and, and making sure all the pieces are in place. I've I've already kind of arranged my convoy of friends and family to have their vehicles ready tomorrow morning to to load up with all my stuff that we can just do some runs into into Hamilton to the new place to start putting all my stuff in there. So it's it's the logistical challenges, but uh, thankfully, if nothing else, this job has trained me to deal with the yeah. logistical challenges. Yeah. You're moving within the region, which is probably mm -hmm. a little bit more straightforward. Again, if I went through this process of moving five hours down the road again you know what i would do guys 
I literally would move as little as possible. I would sell the stuff that's in my apartment and I would just buy stuff when I got back to wherever I'm going down the road because that's what I realized. It cost a ton of money to hire professional movers. My stuff ended up in limbo for six or seven days. And once again, I was at the vulnerability and beck and call of when the movers could eventually bring my stuff to me. In retrospect, what I would have done is I would have packed up stuff that had sentimental or meaningful value to me that I could move in basically Rubbermaid boxes or bags mm -hmm. or whatever. I would have hired a friend to rent a U-Haul truck and we would have just driven together because we had to do that anyway. Mm -hmm. I had to put a bunch of stuff in his Volkswagen Golf and we just drove from Ottawa to Toronto together as it stood. He did me one of the greatest solids that someone ever did for me. But if I did this in the future, I would basically say to myself, what are the electronics or pieces of furniture that you actually want to keep? Can you transport those yourself? And things like bed frames and beds, entertainment units, anything like that, you're just going to buy it new. Sell your stuff in Toronto and you're just going to buy it new wherever you go again and just get one delivery of stuff one delivery of stuff. So Alex, that's my great piece of advice here. I know it's too late for you to do that and within the region it's a little bit different, but for anyone out there who's gotta do a bigger move, don't worry about your stuff. It's gonna cost you less to just buy new stuff in your new city. Yeah, well, and, and yeah, on top to... of that, like, oh, go ahead, Nisri. Oh, sorry about that. I, I have to admit, um, I agree with Dave, even if it's a, not a long, uh, uh, a way to the next move it's it's not a big distance i feel like i i went through the same thing where i came with stuff that i really didn't need and i could get i i was sick of like right away i was like this is a brand new space why do i have this old stuff um so even though it's it's taking up so much space you know you could have got something brand new you could have sold it so i kind of regret bringing those stuff with me and now it's just stashed in the corner of my closet waiting for the next move yeah I, again <laughs> again I'm, I'm not making a sentimental argument i'm making a financial mm -hmm. argument it cost me thousands yeah, yeah. of dollars to move my stuff yeah. and in the end i ended up having to replace a bunch of that stuff over the course of a couple of years anyway right so so do take an inventory of the things you want to bring with you but again alex i know my advice for you is uh long past its actual necessity <laughs> Well, and Dave, like I, when I first joined AMI, I moved from Burlington, Ontario to Edmonton, Alberta. And what the approach I took there was I, I purposely sought out furnished apartments. Yep. It, it limited the uh, the pool greatly of what the apartments that were available. But I, I, I realized I did not want to go through that that initial hassle of trying to find the furniture, trying to transport the furniture, all those logistical challenges, make it as simple as possible. I still had to basically get a uh, a crate and um, ship a pallet worth of my stuff from Burlington to Edmonton, which was a, a, a weird experience on its own. But, you know, it, it was something that made that that type of move far easier. But but I agree, it's like, you know, the less you can move, the better, because the thing is too, even if you have furniture, it may not fit in the new space yeah. the way you would want it to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, it, listen, moving is heck. Alex, I hope you're doing okay. I know you got a lot going on with work and the move, <laughs> and uh, I hope you're doing all right brother i i am i should be okay i'm taking monday and tuesday off but the next time you see me i should be if everything goes right in my new space so i'll give you an update then famous last words <laughs> alex good luck my friend nizreen thank you have a nice weekend
You too. That's Nazreen Abdel-Majid. Coming up after the break, sports and reality documentary series are making a big splash on TV and streamers. Greg David considers why they have such a broad appeal beyond sports fans. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown. You know there's no shortage of ways to keep up with AMI content, TV, audio, podcasts. You might be using any of those forms right now if you're on the podcast. Hello from the past to the future. What were the winning lottery numbers tonight? There's something really cool about AMI's YouTube presence. Communication specialist Greg David can offer some insight on the channel. Hey, Greg, nice to chat with you on a Friday. Always good to chat with you, Dave. Greg, uh, AMI's YouTube channel is wide-ranging. A lot of stuff on there. What makes exploring the channel such a cool experience? I mean, I think the first thing is that um, there's some content on YouTube that you can't kind of get anywhere else, especially if you live outside of Canada. If you do visit the uh, the free AMI Plus, uh, that that content is licensed only for Canada. So when you go to YouTube, there's, there's <laughs> much to my mo- much to my mother's dismay. By the way, she's in yeah, Arizona right yeah. now. She's very angry. Hey, we're working on it. We're working on it. Uh, but yeah, in the meantime, she can go to our YouTube channel because there is a lot of programming there. There's 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 shows like Level Playing Field there, episodes of Healthy at Home with Bobby Jansen, um, uh, highlights from Now with Dave Brown and Kelly and Ramya. Uh, our our podcasts, uh, video podcasts are all available on YouTube. And I don't know if we've talked about this before or not, Dave, but YouTube is like the number one discoverability vehicle behind Google. Mm. Uh, so it really is is a place where we wanted to be with with as much content as possible available to an international audience because that's how you find out about us and and then go to our content. It's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of the platform because you share it anywhere and it's one click for anyone, whether they're yep. using a web browser, whether it's integrated inside the social media software or whether they have the app on their phone, one click and they're in. No paywalls, no blockades, no nothing. It is such an amazing way to spread content. Yeah, it really is. And, and you know, from do-it-yourself, uh, you know, uh, videos, which I watch all of the time, oh, yeah. you know, as a, ho- as a homeowner, like, how do you fix this stuff? Uh, you know, cooking, I check out recipes, so like, uh, uh, you know, Babbage makes uh, recipes on there. And yeah, uh, yeah. Good Mythical Morning, I check out that show every day when I log off from work. It's Good Mythical Morning time for like 45 minutes. So, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's become part of my daily routine. And we want people uh, to make AMI on YouTube part of their daily routine. You mentioned all the different topics and shows that get featured across the channel. How would you describe the approach to categorizing content? Oh, great question. So obviously, obviously there are playlists. So we have a lot of our programming. If you visit the AMI homepage um, on YouTube, we've got everything broken down by playlists. Um, and then there is other programming there that we we separate out into channels. So for instance, the Access Tech Live team, they have their own channel on YouTube, but we link to it so that you can check out those full episodes of Access Tech Live that you may have missed and or can't access on AMI+. Plus. You can go to our YouTube channel and uh, and check them out there. So yeah, it's not only, uh, you know, content 
content that we're creating, but it's also partnerships uh, where we link to their content and bring them to the AMI uh, platform uh, on YouTube as well. What's something that really popped for you recently on the channel? Uh, for me, it's, uh, it's, you know, seeing the content that you put up and then the engagement because you put yeah. that content out there dave you know this and you just never know what's going to hit and so one that's really been a great surprise for me has been parasport update i mean you know yeah you, you, yeah uh, during the during the breaks you feature it throughout the week and uh, and every week greg westlake is giving news from the from the parasport world and so that's been uh, there's been a lot of engagement on the ami channel for parasport update because uh, you know greg is doing great things highlighting what's going on in the parasport world and it's a, a minute and 30 of uh, content that so you can find out about how we've done as a country in Paris sport from the past week and a look ahead to the upcoming week. So yeah, that's been my favorite so far. Anytime I'm perusing through the YouTube channel and Sean Priest and Sean of the Shed pop up mm -hmm. on the feed, it's a guaranteed click for me. A guaranteed click for me. Yeah, it's the perfect his his podcast and video podcast is the perfect mix of fun and education, right? Like you don't realize that you're learning something amidst all the <laughs> boops and bloops and sound effects that he puts in there. But yeah, by the end of those twelve to fifteen minute episodes, you've learned something, you know, technol and about how to make technology more accessible for you. Look for accessible media on YouTube, punch that in the search bar and you will come across it, whether it's the channel or individual videos, uh, super, super cool. Don't forget to subscribe, by the way, just like I tell you with the podcast, don't forget to rate, subscribe and review, punch those thumbs up buttons and share it with your friends. Sharing is caring, accessible media on YouTube. Okay, Greg, let's pivot to something a little different. Sports documentary and reality, reality series are popping up all over TV in the streaming world. Formula One racing has surged in popularity mm -hmm. alongside the series Drive to Survive on Netflix. Dynasty is about the New England Patriots, two decades of excellence atop the football world. Greg, I know you you indulge in a little bit of sports, but why have you gotten so hooked on these docu-reality series? Man, I don't know what it is. I think, you know, we're going to get more into the storytelling, but, you know, whenever you're watching a good show, whenever you're reading or listening to a good audio book, it's all about those characters, and you don't get any more real than than people in, in the sporting world, you know, uh, and, and unfiltered. And so I didn't realize that I cared at all about F1 until I started watching Drive to Survive, and the sixth season just came out, and I binged it over uh, last weekend. I watched all of it, and I'm midway through the dynasty, which is like you said about the New England Patriots and about football and I'm a casual football fan I mean I'll tune in and watch them some games uh, over the course of a season and, and then the Super Bowl but yeah it's just watching these shows I'm just so enthralled in the storytelling learning about these characters and of course there's heroes and villains yeah. in, in yeah. like all of the media right and so that's what I that's what I love about them Sports is an area of entertainment in a time when so many things are not real Ultimately, yeah. there's still something real about the outcomes. Yeah, there's a little bit of TV magic sprinkled in here and there in terms of narrative storytelling within these series. But fundamentally, Greg, it's all reaction to something that's real. And it's not like you have to storyboard the stuff. It just comes out. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and and thanks for for putting putting it that way. Because unlike a reality television show where the storytelling is figured out in kind of the editing suite, when it comes to sporting events, there are games, there are matches, there are those goalposts throughout the sporting season that are being used as part of that storytelling, and 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 to guide you along the way with the show as well. Yeah.
You know what I love, though? I think what just works for me and why I get hooked in here, even as someone who will just watch the games and be happy about the games, I love the access, Greg. I love the microphones and the cameras behind the scenes. And you start, you talked about heroes and villains. You start really understanding about the personalities behind the games. Absolutely, because if you just watch a broadcast of, of a live game, you know, a, a golf event over the weekend, or, you know, you don't get those behind the scenes stories. You don't get to care about those guys. And so I think um, uh, Full Swing, which is about PGA golf, it wasn't until I, until I started watching that show that I learned, you know, the stakes, you, the families, the kids that are involved, and what it means to these players to be out there. I think to a certain extent, you know, sport uh, athletes are, are taught to speak a certain way in non committal sound bites but when you're watching shows like these like we're talking about you're getting that unfettered access you're really getting to hear what they really think as they're speaking into the camera and you don't need to be a fan of any of these sports to watch any of these shows uh because you know your everything is kind of explained to you very often in the first couple of episodes here's what this show is about and here's why you should care and now we're going to tell the story of these people and this sport Greg, you and I would be here well past the hard outs, well past the noon hour if I just started telling you about all the sports documentaries that I love. But yeah. I want to give a few shout outs here. Every single year, Showtime does a series called Hard Knocks that goes into training camps around the NFL that mm -hmm. at times is so heartbreaking because you watch humans have their dreams crushed by injuries or team decisions. It's such beautiful storytelling that is so raw and so beautifully beautifully done. I recommend it to anybody any year. Watch Hard Knocks. The other one also comes from the football world. This one was from the junior college American football world called Last Chance U. Once mm -hmm. again, looking at people coming from very difficult pasts, trying to figure out their academics and their love of football through just beautiful music and video storytelling. Oh my gosh, Greg. Like the number of times that I left that show crying, weeping, I, 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 can't, I cannot count the number of times. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, since you're throwing out recommendations, in addition to the ones we've already talked about and you talked about, uh, there's also, you know, we, welcome to Wrexham, obviously, oh. you know, there's the, the you know, Ryan, uh, Ryan Reynolds and, and uh, Rob McElhenney uh, buying a, a, a Welsh um, football team. That's great. There's two seasons of that. But I would ch check out Beckham, which is a three-part series about David Beckham and just learning about him. I mean, I grew up, the, you know, watching him and, but I didn't know the story, of course, behind the scenes right there's just the gossip about him being with victoria beckham and and all of that but that was that was fascinating to me and i'll throw out a little fun one for you muscles and mayhem the unauthorized story of american gladiators which oh, is available oh, on netflix oh. again three episodes you have to check that out oh oh okay all right weekend plans <laughs> weekend plans now said i loved that show when i was a kid uh greg one of the my greatest um that's not a regret, but one of the things that makes me saddest about HBO scrapping their sports department is they used to do this series called 24-7, and they yes. used to do it before all their big boxing matches. And once again, it was the idea of intimacy with people as they're preparing for one of the biggest moments of their sporting lives. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sad that HBO is cutting their uh, sports coverage, but they were just doing marvelous work, and they were way, way, way ahead of the game. Greg, like I said, you and I could talk about this all day, but the hard out cometh, so I must say goodbyeth to you. 
No problem. We'll book another segment in a few months and talk about sports talks. <laughs> yeah, we'll book an off-air meeting. We'll just we'll yeah. hang out. It's like that meme that exists on social media. Men can just go to a bar and name baseball players and have the time of their life. That's Greg David, communication specialist for AMI. That's all the time there is for the show today and for the week until Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Let's say thank you to the people who work their tails off behind the scenes. Roll those credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Entertainment reporter, Laura Bain. Contributors, Ramia Mutin, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanero. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion jones Bob Pagrak. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. DB producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Octoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of live productions, Paula Deneen. Director of content development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2024, Accessible Media Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.